In the future, the Earth is ravaged by a war between the religious and secular world. Forced underground, the Hawks, people of religious conviction, plot and plan their revenge. But the supercomputer who controls the world, Mother, has a paramilitary force at her command to hunt them down and destroy them. They are the Faith Seekers. Now, you tried to do the worst possible thing that can be done to a man, to take away his faith. Now it's my turn. I'm going to take away something of yours. I have the Lord on my side. Mother does not know where you are. I understand. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But the children must be killed. I am Mother. She wants you to sacrifice yourself for her. Mother knows where I am. They'll be here soon. They've no idea where you are. The cleansing has been a complete success. Faith seekers are tanks. They are relentless and will never stop until they have destroyed all those who believe in a god. Hmm. I'm going to have to take a little look in a minute. See what the heart of an unbeliever looks like. I wonder, what colour will it be? Black, I expect. Faith Seekers by Greg James Available now on Amazon and Lulu Paperback or ebook Download it now Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. A podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the Target novelisation. So, join us, jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and, with a wheezing, groaning sound, we'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is Greg in Swansea. And this is David in Chelmsford. For this podcast, we're going to try something a bit different. Rather than examine a brand new title, we are returning to a classic reading from 2007, when audiobooks drawn from the Target range truly flourished as regular releases from the BBC. We've chosen Doctor Who and the Giant Robot by Terence Dix, read by Tom Baker, to be our subject matter. This story, called simply Robot on television, aired between the 28th of December 1974 
and the 18th of January 1975. It marked the incomparable Tom Baker's Doctor Who debut, his unbroken seven-year tenure in the role still unequalled by any other actor. Although produced by the legendary Barry Letts, Robot was very much a prototype for many stories from the Philip Hinchcliffe era, which took classic horror films as their inspiration. In this particular case, King Kong, 1933, has clearly influenced Terence Dix's storyline. The novelisation Doctor Who and the Giant Robot was first published on the 13th of March 1975. And so the first question I need to ask you, Greg, is, did you buy it? And um, the answer, of course, I was eight years old because the release date for this, the 13th of March, is my birthday. And uh, so that was my eighth birthday. And yes, I bought it. Not not in hardback. I, I, I could never aspire to hardbacks. They were too expensive for me. But um, yeah, I had it. And I remember um, loving it and seeing the, the change in the style of this book because I noticed, you know, it's got a, it's got a really action-packed dynamic cover on it. I I don't know if it's my favourite. I would say, I don't know how I describe the cover, but I would say it, it's action-packed enough. But it's not it's not classy like a lot of the other Doctor Who target covers are. What, what about you, David? Did you buy this when it first came well, out? Well, I've got a guilty confession over this. Well, we'll come to that. Talking about the original cover. The original painting was by cartoonist Peter Brooks and so he's a cartoonist which is why the style is so different to say Chris Achilles. I mean I do love the cover an awful lot and I like the fact that it integrates Tom Baker's image into the Doctor Who logo which I'm not sure that happened again and I liked the main picture of the robot looking very large and the small insert of um, Sarah Jane looking a bit yeah. like Fay Ray, being gripped by a monstrous claw of a hand. Yes. yes but I didn't own that edition of the book. What? No, no. It was, um, it, it, I think it cost 35p, which was quite a lot of money. And I bought a second-hand copy of the book from a school fate really? a few years later. And so the cover that I got was the Jeff Cummings painting which is the same cover as the audio book, and also one of the paintings that we saw at the Target cover exhibition. We did. So, full circle. I owned the second edition. I did not own the original. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I never owned that second edition. I I, I remember loving the cover. I I loved the fact that... um, Tom Baker as well was sort of superimposed in the O, wasn't it? You know, I I like that uh, sort of quite iconic. And I've seen it um, mentioned that apparently this was the first time that the the Doctor Who sort of logo was used properly on the on the cover. I know the diamond's not on there, but it was it's the actual proper um, lettering on that diamond. Yeah, yeah. Because of course before that we had that sort of I think it was generally black, wasn't it? That sort of John Pertwee-ish style lettering. And so this cover sort of, I don't know whether there's a bit of a, a bit of a new push with them, but they sort of, uh, it, it jumps right out to you, doesn't it? They're so action-packed, everything's going on there. I think the planes so, are attacking the robot, aren't they? 
Yeah, yeah. And like you say, I mean, the, I mean, it doesn't hide any of its heritage. You know, right on the cover there, you have got, as you mentioned, that, that uh, King Kong, Fay Ray uh, iconography there, isn't it? Of her being held in this mm. enormous hand. And mm. uh, yeah, I mean, a lovely cover. Um, and he sort of embellished the robot a bit, isn't it? You know, and not that there's any need to, because the actual robot in the TV series is a fabulous creation, I think. Well, it is indeed. Um, and I think, didn't we see it in Cardiff when we went to the Doctor Who experience? We did. It was lurking at the back, wasn't it? It looks really splendid again. Yeah, and it, it's still really impressive, isn't it? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, I, I loved it. It's a fabulous robot, you know. And uh, so, yeah, it's quite interesting, this, because did you say it, the book came out at the... Well, is it the height of uh, Target Mania, you could say? it's. Uh, well, I would say it's quite an early one, isn't it? Um, um, 75, but what what oh. did surprise me was the proximity to the television version because the actual story only finished transmitting in January 75 and then two months later or so you have the novel out. So wow. it's like coming out on VHS or DVD or Blu-ray or whatever. Uh, yeah, one followed hot on the heels of the other. Gosh, that's that's incredible. I wasn't aware of that because yeah, I, I'm just looking at the dates now. Good God! So it really is a fabulous turnaround. With it. It's hot off the press, literally. Isn't well, it? it is. It is absolutely. Gosh. I mean, we're here to discuss the audio book primarily, and yeah. I think a great place to start with that would be to discuss the narrator, Tom Baker, mm. who. Of course, is Doctor Who royalty, isn't he, really? No oh, getting away from that. And absolutely. Just like John Coleshaw in the current releases, Tom's narration of a title was about as close as you could get as a listener to a guarantee of satisfaction with the product. Oh, I mean, did yeah. I mean, I find his voice, his voice is, I, I'm going to say unique, even though John Coleshaw mimics it fantastically. Yeah. It's so distinctive and... Oh. The way he attacks the text is so Tom, it's untrue. It, what, what, how it, did you? How did you find? Were you were you enchanted by the way he read the book? Well, I I just love the adjective you use there, enchanted, because that is exactly the right word to use for when when Tom's voice hits your ears. You know, it is an enchantment because you know you can just listen to his voice forever. It's just so wonderfully done. And and it's interesting that when he was doing, you know, some of the Doctor's dialogue, he, he really was doing the Doctor's dialogue, wasn't he, mm. in a, a lot of it, which was lovely because he, he, he didn't need to put that amount of effort into it. He didn't need to go into that amount of detail. He could have just read it, but he was performing this. And um, I think he did a wonderful job of it. Really, really good. And he could have just read it in his normal voice gone through and it would have still been fabulous. But the way that he put the effort in, for example, when he does the uh, the robot, um, it's treated in the audio version, but it comes across really well, doesn't mm. it? It sounds so much like because I think in the TV version the the robot has a fabulous intimidating voice, doesn't it? Mm. And Tom just does it so well in mm. here. Um, I would even say I did find it um, a little strange that um, 
when he was doing the Brigadier's voice in it, of course, he was trying to make him even more gruffer macho. I was going to say, like. yes, he, he he put a bit of gruffness into the voice. It was basically Tom with a gruff voice, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. It was good. But it's quite interesting listening to it on the speakers because Tom has got a very powerful, deep voice there, but he was making it even more and the speakers were sort of booming away. You know? it, was, it, was loved. it was a joy to listen to, an absolute mm. joy. And I think... Um, uh, some of the lines just stick in your mind so vividly, you know. It's a, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've got in my notes here the way he's talking about when the gun um, shoots one of the the unit soldiers, you know, the ray gun, the uh, the disintegrator, yeah. the disintegrator gun. Sorry, yes. And he says, and he exploded, and he leaves a good long pause, and then says, "Into nothingness." <laughs> and it's oh, it's so good, isn't it? He it's does, so yes. I'd, I'd say he deploys his full vocal range from booming to silky tones. He gets yeah. them all in, and his pronunciation is so correct. Mm. Having, every time he says wheel, he says wheel. He really <laughs> he does. does the WH. And there's one word in it, he says Essex. Like oh. he does it on Little Britain, where he says Britain, Britain, Britain. If he'd have said Essex, Essex, Essex in that manner, I would have been very happy because. Of course, Essex was the home of Target Books. Oh, uh, there well, we are. You know, you've just, yeah, you've just told me a fact I didn't realise, did you? Yeah, yeah. No, they came from a place called Tiptree, where the jam comes from, Target Gosh, Books. I, I, I love Tiptree jam. It's very expensive. And it's uh, very Yeah, good. and it's also the jam that James Bond eats. In, um, from Russia with Love, Fleming does a very uh, long description of James Bond's breakfast, and he has strawberry jam from Wilkin and Son, Tiptree, Essex. So wow. there you are. Gosh. Famous, great. still famous for jam, not famous for Target books anymore. Oh, oh well. <laughs> that's, that's a real pity. That's a real pity. Well, um, yeah, the, the audio version, as I say, you know, Tom's narration is fabulous. And this is this is a quite an early one, isn't it, David, I think, the audio copy? Yes, yes. It, it came out in 2007, and I think the range was really booming and taking off well it was you know you had the husband and wife team of Jeffrey Beavers and Caroline John active mm. that year doing a lot of the classic Malcolm Hulk titles which were marvellous titles we really ought to listen yeah. to some of those as well Tom did well. three of his own stories he did uh, he did Brain of Morbius as well and he did Creature from the Pit which I thought was quite a bizarre choice for him oh. to record did I say Pyramids of Mars? No, you didn't mention no, that. No, Pyramids. So he did four then. Because I'll, I'll swear that he recorded Pyramids of Mars as well. So they, they, these are the, the absolute gems that we should be cherry-picking to talk about. But we had to start with Robot because it's yeah. where it all begins. Well, there's one thing that's very noticeable for me as well. Um, the production company that's produced this audiobook, I noticed... In the quality of um, something you're keen to pick on, the soundscape, the mm. quality of this. Uh, I think this is very, very professionally done. Oh, I think it's wonderful. Um, the mm. robot, I don't know if you noticed, but he has his own musical theme, which consists of noisy, rattly snare drums underscored oh. by rumbling kettle drums. And I really, oh. really liked it. And yes, you could, probably could argue that it's overused, but you know he's coming because the music starts. 
Yeah. And and it's really, really good. It yes. sounds exactly how I would imagine the giant robot to move. Well, yeah. Well, I noticed that the unit as well has got its own little uh, motif, isn't this theme tune as well? Right, right. Throughout it, yeah. And um, it was just everything. Even when um, the doctor was performing things or doing the robot voice or they were bringing in a few sound effects like machine gun fire from unit, it was done very, very subtly in line with it was allowing tom to be center stage mm-hmm. but it was just giving that little bit of atmosphere a bit of a bit of color to it. it i thought it was very very professionally done i'm ashamed to say i don't know who who was doing it at the time i know at the titles at the end they said who the production company is well it's book. it was audio go wasn't it originally audio go down in bath right. did these early oh. releases Right, People right. travel to Bath to record them, and I know that because I was at a Tomb of the Cybermen event with Michael Kilgariff, who, of course, played the robot in this story, and yes. he just mentioned, he just slipped into the conversation that he'd been down to Bath to record Tomb of the Cybermen. Uh-huh. And, um, yes, so it was Audio Go in those days who were based in Bath. Well, well, fair play to them. They, they, you know, excellent production values. Very but, um, Did you, you thought so, I, David? I, I thought so. I mean, in my notes, I put no jarringly noisy sound effects underscoring the action, unlike modern releases. Had to get yes. that dig in, didn't I, in my notes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is what we found with the with with the more the more modern releases is that. Some of them, um, I don't know, I think they lost their way in some of them, didn't they, with this over-the-top sound effects and too loud. I mean, I think I've mentioned jumping out of my skin several times, you know, so you're sort of enthralled in the story, and then all of a sudden there's a, a sound effect, which is a completely different level to the story you're listening yes, to. Yes, no, it happens, it happens. Yeah, but I will say, luckily, um, all of the um, the Tom Baker ones that we've had um, recently have been excellent though haven't they mm, they have excellent. i remember horror of fang rock had a very good soundscape it did, very it did. evocative stuff that was oh absolutely them. fabulous but this yeah, as you yeah. say this this had such good balance and although tom's voice remains tom's voice throughout and he makes a slight vocal change as you've noted for the brigadier and he puts on as, as such a nasty voice for Miss Winters, doesn't he? Oh, there's no doubt she's an evil, evil, evil woman. He reads her really, really well. I, I was really impressed. Yeah, he does. He's just, um, he's got that character in it. He's well, I, I know Tom loved having female leads next to him, didn't he, in, mm. in the TV series. He loved the challenge and he was very impressed with a lot of the female uh stars you know which came in to play opposite him i, I wonder i can't remember in the, in the actual tv story was it somebody who he enjoyed playing against i wonder because well, he seemed to have a real feel for this character didn't he well we did well she is the key villain in the whole piece because the robot is a an innocent isn't he he's looking to mankind for protection and none is forthcoming because winters and jellico are basically very very evil people and you you are. I mean, he's a bit like um, Frankenstein's monster, isn't he? If you want to make another literary reference. I mean, the monster turns bad when it's shunned by mankind. And this monster turned bad, didn't he? 
when yeah. when his when his mind and his spirit and his ethical code were ruined by constant reprogramming and yeah. making him a go against these prime directives not to do harm yes. and i really felt and and again you know it's all in tom's performance but i really felt that the robot came across as the victim yeah. and jellico and miss winters were very clearly marked as the people responsible for its turmoil and its suffering and yes it was very clear stuff very mm. clearly delineated i yeah it's interesting because this it's unusual the joint robot in this way because it was written by terence dix i believe wasn't it for... yes it was the robot was written by terence dix and so was the book yes excellent now for his but it's very much i feel um, a unit story Mm. It's almost it's almost like um, well I don't know maybe I'm over it but it bridges the gap very nicely but it's very still much a feel of unit it's only at the end of the story when they go into the TARDIS you know and then I mean and then we we enter onto Tom's second adventure where Tom Baker is really um, he's found his feet in the, in that sense that he's that he's on his way into his own story. Mm-hmm. Did, did you to get a very uh, unit John Pertwee feel about the story? Yes, I, I think you've made a fair point there. I mean, in my introduction, I mentioned that although Barry Letts produced this particular story, it felt sort of Philip Hinchcliffe monster-themed. But yes, yeah. you're right, now I can see it. It's Barry Letts and Terence Dix sort of tying off the unit family to enable the programme to evolve into the sort of space opera that it later became. And the arc in space is a completely different shift in tone of a story, isn't it? And as you say, Tom's now got the show. He's cast off the... I don't know, it's like a chrysalis, isn't he? He comes out of his chrysalis in this story. And then in the arc in space, he's a, a sort of a formed character all of a sudden, isn't he? And he's got his crew around him his family and it's no longer the unit family because they were Pertwee's family he's yeah, got his own a, one he has that's a really interesting way of describing it David I haven't thought of it like that yeah it's like here it is coming out of his chrysalis isn't it? mm. it's, yeah that's really interesting because we've got Tom in here and like I say it, it's he's surrounded by all the unit characters we've got the action of the unit story but that Philip Hinchcliffe feel is coming in, like you say, the sort mm. of the the leaning towards classic um, or sort of well known. I mean, the Beauty and the Beast tale, perhaps the mm-hmm. the the King Kong, um, the classic King Kong. Yes, story. King Kong is there for all to see. Frankenstein, maybe. Yes, I agree. Frankenstein. It's the monster who wants to be accepted but is shunned. And turns yes. bad as a consequence. Yes, yes. And because he and, can't and, have love, he must destroy. And yes. that's what the robot does. Yeah. The robot yeah. isn't made bad. He's turned bad. Yes. By the programming. Yeah. That, and that's really interesting. And there's that to sort of... beautiful piece of writing. And every time he kills, you get the feeling he's full of remorse because he lowers the bodies gently. And he yeah. always says, I don't want to cause you unnecessary pain. And yes. he's got this conflict going all the time. 
and it's wonderfully written stuff and I'm not sure that came across on the telly but it certainly comes across in the way Terence tells the story in the book. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it is very apparent in the book. Um, you know, it's quite... Um, and I think, again, the the, the expression uh, when Tom is doing the robot and the, in this, it really brings it out that um, the robot, you know, is going up against, as he says, his prime directive. You know, it, it's, it's in there not to do it and he's been tampered with. And what I loved about it was the scene in the writing, which I don't believe was in the TV series, where they're operating on him and removing pieces of this 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 humanity, if you like, that right. sort of transplanted in his brain. Do you remember they're that? They're removing scene? his moral compass, aren't they? The, exactly, they are, you know, and you just think, gosh, this is this is body horror. They're, they're interfering with his brain. It's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit... Um, I, you know, Planet of the Apes, maybe, when they remove their brain to stop them being, uh, you know, the human creatures that they are. Right. I, I don't know, but it was it was quite interesting that to see all these different angles that have been put in there, you know. When you think it's strange, we have this story, we have, it's a great action-packed adventure story. I, I've got in my notes, um, you know, I, I love the, the fact that it's like, real espionage or secret organization oh. you know the srs and think tank and you go wow it's all going on this could be a james bond film wow. and within that we've got this if you like this as you said this chris uh, sort of crystallization coming of the hinchcliffe tom baker era coming out of that the the humanity showing mm. am i reading too deeply no i don't do i don't think you're reading too deeply at all. I mean, I think when Terence wrote the original story, it was quite topical in a way, wasn't it? Because in The Green Death, we had another sort of mini think tank. We had the Nuthatch, who were doing ecological, tree-huggy, good things for mankind. And I like to think that they were some sort of hippie offshoot of the Fabian Society, whereas the... <laughs> think tank that we're dealing with here I like to think that's probably the centre for policy studies so oh. a little bit more right wing and <laughs> funny enough the centre for policy studies was established by Margaret Thatcher and Keith Joseph in 1974 so that is really? the same year that episode one of Robot was transmitted so I'd like wow. to think that Terence was such a visionary he was showing us where this yeah. thought could ultimately lead i mean i'm not saying in respect of those people but i'm saying the, the 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 elite the fact that they set themselves up it's not through an accident of birth it's not through an outcome of conquest it's based on their iq that they believe that they have the right to rule and yes. it's it's good because i noticed when i was listening to tom's narration of of terence's original book you get the, the think tank, it's a sort of a fusion of public and, and private, well, enterprise mixed with public servants. And they sort of yeah. mesh together and they sort of pool resources, originally as a cost-saving, I think. But one section of the organisation seems to poison the other somehow, because by the time that they put their 
terrible plan into action and unit go and raid the think tank office, they've all gone to the bunker. So they've all been radicalised. You know, they've started off as perfectly reasonable people, but this cancer, for want of a better word, this extreme right-wing thought has come into them and all of a sudden they're all at it. They all totally accept their right to rule based on their IQs. Yes. Or do, yeah. am I reading too much into it? Or no, do you think, no. you know, do do you think it's showing the the outcome if you take, well, if if you assume, if you if you deny others their political voice, if you set yourself up as being bigger and greater, and and say I need to make decisions for these people because they're not intellectually capable of deciding their own destiny. Now you might say that there's quite a lot of truth in that and, and that um, some some form of governance or well that's why we have a society isn't it that's why we have mm. a social structure albeit, yeah. albeit one that's been slightly watered down in the, in the in the modern world but I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into it no no I, I don't think you're at all I think it's a, it's a very um, apt analogy because um, you know, it's strange, it's, it's prescient, it's up to date as well. O- only last week, you know, I think, or around the election time, you know, we were discussing about uh, all these um, voices that, be, that are being presented on the, on, the, on the BBC, not just the BBC, but that's what I was watching. And uh, they, were, they were having these, uh, you know, like you say, the Centre for Whatever Studies, the Institute of Financial Directors, the uh, and it's just thing. All of these people with these names, this is this is this is all propaganda, isn't it? Right. What's going on behind those names? Right. You know, but they're presenting themselves as something of authority and what you should listen to, and this is your opinion. Because it always makes me wonder why on earth do they ask these people anything anyway? They don't represent anybody but themselves. Right. But, and, and this is, but it's quite interesting that you you mention this in here because of course they do. Um, quickly get into that feeling that they have the right to do these things. But I thought it was also nicely counterpointed with um, this, that when they discussed in that piece where they were talking about the nuclear codes being given, you know, this scenario that um, they hold the nuclear codes for everyone. So if anybody's going to attack anybody else for the, you know, the sort of whatever reason, they can threaten to unleash hell, if you like, on, on all of them, isn't it? That, right. That's the scenario, isn't it? Well, in, Great in Britain gets to hold the nuclear codes because it's the only country in the world with enough moral fibre and backbone to be trusted with such a responsibility. The Brigadier's terribly proud of that, and rightly so, I think. <laughs> yes, uh, but what I love that is that that is, that is punctured by, my, by the line straight after it, because doesn't the doctor say, um, well, of course, you know, it was happy Britain because the rest are all foreigners, yeah. They're all foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> so I love the fact, though, isn't, isn't it great that um, Terrence Sticks and Tom Baker are doing this, you know? They, they, they put it up, but they still they can still be sarcastic, you know? I, I tell you what strikes me, David. I mean, it'd be interesting to get your opinion on this, actually, is, you know, we love Terence. He's a wonderful writer. It's great. But, you know, he always says these lines that when people say about the morality that's in the stories and the, as we've been discussing now, the political and so forth and them, 
uh, aspects of them. And he always says, if you want to see it, it's there if you want to mm. see it. But my part is to do a story. He said, if you can see it there, great. But he's not hes not being truthful there, is he? He has done all of this on purpose. I'm it's sure he's, yes, I, I'm sure that uh, probably at a conscious, but if nothing else, at a subconscious level, he's made it a very contemporary story because it reflects what's going on around him in the world at that time. I mean, if you were writing this story now, you'd probably yeah. approach it differently. We've just had a mm. situation in this country relatively recently where it seems, well, actually global politics in a way, we seem to have moved away from intellectualism and we seem to have moved into anti-intellectualism. And we've mm. had a very high-profile politician say, I think we're all a bit fed up with experts. And that's fine because oh. the next time that particular politician's ill, I'm sure he won't go and ask a doctor, i.e. an expert. He'll go and ask the man on the Clapham omnibus what's wrong with him and see what he has to say about the fact. But that's by the by. But um, where would we... Oh, yes, I know it's topical because the... The, the the sort of the think tank, their, their, their sort of scientific wing, the older strand of the think tank, Sarah Jane goes mm. to interview them and they're sort of viewed a bit of as a bit of a joke, aren't they? She, you know, he, the, yeah. the old chap sort of says, questions her clothing, i.e. he's trying to roll back women's liberation, I assume, because he's, you know, he's he's trying to impose a structure and an appearance on Sarah Jane, which she rejects because she's a liberated young lady. And um, mm. she says, oh, oh, I'm sure I can find a place for you between the flat earthers and the flying saucer men, which is quite oh. cruel, but, oh. you know, you'd have to say now. Oh. You'd have to say, oh, oh, I'll find space for you between the creationists and the climate change deniers. And that would yes, give you the yes. same yeah. modern referencing, wouldn't it? How seriously... It actually, yes. but, but then when these people get the upper hand, when, when it moves away from being a bit of harmless fun and they start setting the political agenda, that's when things get really, really terrifying. And yes. I think, you know, we, I think we can all see that in the modern world as well. So in many ways, the story remains quite contemporary. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the way you just transplanted those um, you know, present concerns into those into that time, you know, saying to update it, mm. um, it makes absolute sense. It would be um, very much updated like that. And mm. uh, and I think, do you know, you mentioned about um, Sarah Jane as well. You know, we look at the difference in time which has passed. I believe Sarah Jane was meant to be was cast to sort of be a more you know the feminist movement was at its height and i think i believe they wanted somebody to reflect this didn't they mm -hmm. to sort of a big change from um joe's character previously who i absolutely adored you know mm -hmm. joe's character wonderful she's fabulous at it. but um uh to this sort of mod what would have been a modern woman then with ideas and yet mm -hmm. in this story it's quite interesting that I don't know if Terence is playing with this, or, but um, Sarah makes an assumption mm. about who runs the the, the organisation, doesn't mm. she? Yes, and she, she does. Thinks, she assumes it's the man, but of course it's Miss Winters. Well, it, it is. Yes, Jellicoe's assumed to be in charge, so instantly Sarah Jane kicks herself because she's fallen into the trap, hasn't she? She's yeah. fallen into comfortable, familiar gender stereotyping for the Absolutely. director. 
and that's actually completely the opposite of how she sees the world or you think that's the opposite of how she would see the world so yes, yes so, so it's two things at play there's the gender politics and the scientific stroke political ethics both yeah. at play in the story both yeah. very and big a... subjects very uh, for, for our time as well as Absolutely. for the 1970s yeah, I suppose yeah, the other yeah. thing that was rife in the early 70s was terrorism. You know, these oh, people are holding the world to ransom. Yeah, You know, we had terrorists. our own brand of terror in those days and we have a new brand of terror today. So yes. the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've, we've come full circle. I mean, what was this, 74? So it's not 50 years old yet, is it? 45 years and, and the circle has just turned completely one revolution and we yeah. seem to be basically with a couple of fine tweaks and fine tunes we seem to be basically back where we were when this story was originally made perhaps not in terms of um, scientific thought but perhaps in terms of political thought I don't know perhaps yeah. I'm making too sweeping a statement perhaps it's wrong no no I, I, I don't think so and and this is one of the interesting thing I do love about um, especially the better Target books like this one, you know, is that um, they do have all that, uh, you know, mixed in to the fabric of their being. It, it, it is there. I mean, I often say that um, Target books and Doctor Who gave me a wonderful sense of morality when I was growing up, you know, and um, I, 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 there's not much that I disagree with. I mean, well, Obviously, there are things which things have moved on and, and maybe things which are might, might be seen as politically incorrect. I mean, certainly some of the 60s um, Doctor Who's and Targets, the sexism is pretty ripe in some of them in there, you know, it's no doubt about Yes, yeah. And uh, But, you know, aside from some of those issues, I think it's got a wonderful sense of morality. And, uh, I mean, as we were saying, with the robot, you know, um, this robot, as you said, had real conflict about harming people. Mm, he he commits mean, murder, but tenderly, doesn't he? Yes, that's, that's lovely put, David. I think, and that's the 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 beauty of this, where we have this, uh, you know, this horrific act being perpetrated. But it doesn't have to be, you, you know, what he could have put the mind of the robot was a maniacal lunatic who didn't care about people. No they chose to put in what they thought of as humanity. And that humanity was about not hurting people, not killing people, mm. not doing... And that is essentially what they're saying is the essence of humanity, I think. Well, I think and so. Because if you remember, Kettlewell gave the robot his own brain profile, didn't he? But he unfortunately, did. Kettlewell is a fallible human being and he's seduced... Mm by Miss yeah. Winters. It definitely, yes. he's, a, he's a weak, weak man, isn't he? And he only yes. really mans up and stands up to be counted when it's too late and when the damage is being done. Yes. And yeah. um, it, I suppose for the robot, when he kills Kettlewell, it's the thing that tips him. It's, it's, the, it's like a suicide. It's like an yeah. act of self-harm. And that's what tips the robot. He's... He's extinguished what's left of his moral compass yeah. and he kidnaps the only person who's really shown him any kindness recently, well, is, and Sarah Jane. 
Exactly. And that's the interesting thing, because he actually, once he's done it, he says, I have destroyed my creator, doesn't he, I think, something right uh, along those lines. And you... then, of course, with Sarah, as you said, you know, the only person who's shown him kindness with all these people who want him to do these evil things. And she's cared about him right right to the beginning when she first meets him. And, and um, Miss Winters does that cruel, terrifying oh. thing. Yes, yes. 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 Yeah. She says, um, uh, reminds what does she do, David? She uh, well, she says she orders the robot to kill Sarah, and yes. it and it makes as if it's going to do it, and we all yeah. think it's going to do it, and then it yeah. doesn't. But yeah. afterwards, um, Jellico says, I think you went a bit far. What would have happened if it had carried it out? And she says, Ah, oh, but it didn't, but it was still an interesting experiment, so she doesn't have any ethics. She would have found it equally interesting for the robot to have resisted or killed. She didn't yes. matter. Yeah. She proved yes. her point either way. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And of course, that that, that way that she sort of instantly took the caring thing of, but you're hurting him. You're putting him through pain. It's cruel. And of course, we've got that moral compass. You know, we we've got that two pieces of humanity there well all around are these supposedly um incredibly high iq geniuses who know what's best for us isn't it mm. and and they 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 not on that human level at all well no i mean there's the, you know they're fascists there's no other way yes. to describe them they are yeah. a neo-fascist organization yeah or that Gosh. element of it and they take over as i say they radicalize the more reasonable elements like and i suppose they're their sort of um, the summation of those is Kettlewell himself because he's seduced, mm. he's greedy. He he sees he has a moral view of the world. He has an ideal of the world, but he seems prepared to park his moral codes in order to achieve it quicker. Yes, yes. And so yeah. we so we see him become intoxicated with these terrible, terrible people, uh, and and then and their way of doing things. Yes, yeah, so it's funny because I was just thinking because the robot, as you rightly say, shows real remorse when he kills mm. Kettlewell. Of course, Frankenstein's monster actively wanted to kill his creator. He was, you know, that was top of his to-do list. So there is yes. a bit of a contrast there. Yes, yes, you are right. Yeah, he did, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He did. Oh, gosh, I don't know. Yeah. I think yeah. before we 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 move on too far away from it, I just like to make a couple of observations about the writing yeah. because i think as we've we've made very very clear in the past we do love terence yes. and terence dix when he's writing this book of his own script yeah. he's at the absolute peak of his powers he's mm. still riding the crest of the wave from his long association with televised doctor who He's making a seemingly effortless transition to establish himself as a favourite author for the children of our generation. And he's sort of filling in the gaps in our knowledge about stories that we're too young to have seen upon transmission and allowing us to re-experience the comparatively few that we have seen. So well, he's, you know, he's, he's, I'm, I'm his biggest fan, I think. We always yeah. discuss Terence's books. We really ought to do a Malcolm Hulk or something. You know, I'm sure there's gold in them there, Hills, and we need to go and mine it out. Yeah. But yeah. Terence is, is just so familiar and great, we always end up praising him to the skies. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I was about to to, to say, you know, I realised we were sort of veering off into these these deeper aspects of this book, which I, I think very much are there. But um, I was about to say, and yet it's all wrapped up in this fabulous action adventure fun mm. story, mm. and that's and that's the beauty of it, isn't it? That's so. You know, we we often mention them with Terence. You know, he can just flick a couple of sentences in there, and a whole world is produced from it. And he does the same thing here. You know, we've got all of these things, and he can just throw a couple of lines in there, and they are just so accurate. They just bring up these whole scenarios for us and like you say fill in all the gaps which we don't see on tv well yeah some of the some of the notes that i've made about the characterization here in this really interesting i feel about um we were mentioning earlier about it's it's very much a unit john pertwee-ish type story with the doctor you you gave that uh, really interesting um uh idea of it being a chrysalis and um, I thought that's great because we can see Tom's doctor, or the fourth doctor, if you like, starting to become that fourth doctor, mm. can't we? When we go we through can. it, I love the bit with the bouncer, for example. Now, when he's going to go into the to the meeting and he he's looking for ID and he comes out with all these lovely lines like, uh, I don't know, freedom of the city of Scarrow, no, and, mm. and so forth. And he 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 actually approaches the bouncer who's just taking no notice of this and he's going to grab him he's a he's a wrestler this bouncer hmm. and tom i say tom is it the doctor <laughs> sidesteps him pops his leg under him and the and the bouncer ends up crashed out on the table doesn't he mm-hmm. and tom then gives a lovely little line of um saying oh that's right old chap you take a rest i'll try and go and get some help and uh ah. now we know what would have happened if this were John Pertwee's doctor. It would have been the Venetian Aikido, Venetian yep. Aikido, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And I feel, you know, this we're starting to see the fourth doctor's characteriz- characterization coming in with these little uh, touches here. Do you think, David? Or... Oh, I, I do. I think it's very. I mean, I've used the analogy before. It's Sean Connery being replaced by Roger Moore, isn't it? Yes. We, we we love them both. We love yeah. them both for different reasons. We yeah. love we love one for raw aggression and the ability to kill, but we lo- mm. love the other one for the slight tongue in cheek and the raised eyebrow, whilst doing things with slightly more style and perhaps less menace and yeah. viciousness. And 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 it is, isn't it? It's yeah. it's you know Pertwee very much the establishment figure, mm. very much fitted in with the unit set up very much enjoyed being at the sort of pinnacle of that organization but tom's doctor he doesn't want to know anymore he's sort of been there done that got the t-shirt and he now wants to be out into the universe again yes and this is this is where he's released back into the universe yeah with his new crew with his with harry and sarah yeah it's like you say that last scene is is a lovely sort of uh, rebirth to carry on mm. with you, with with your mm. analogy there. Well, in, um, of course, in Terence's book, the regeneration happens over several days, whereas on telly it happened over several seconds, because the doctor's oh. comatosed, isn't he, at yes. first, and they don't, you know, he's confined to sick bay, 
and um, he's he's obviously a lot more shaken up by it in the book yeah. than he was on telly. But it yeah. it is it is. I'm I'm glad I said chrysalis because that's exactly what the whole thing. I mean, more so when Tom himself regenerates into Peter Davison, and he actually does have a white cocoon type yeah. mask, doesn't he? And perhaps he that's does. what regeneration is. It's the the butterfly hatching, the new butterfly hatching yes. out. Yeah. And that's what yeah. we've seen. Brilliant. Well, that's, that's, yeah, that's really fascinating, actually. And uh, I, I will say some of the things, do you know, I, I missed, um, it's got some very famous lines in it, I think, this story mm-hmm. as well. And, um, do you know, you, you mentioned um, the other week, David, when we were reviewing, I think, one of the one of the last Capaldi stories, and I got, I got a bit confused. I didn't realise the um, the whole crux of what you said with the line, which, of course, you you said that um, Capaldi said the line about the Santarans. Oh yes, 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 and and, and this is the first on. thing. That Tom Baker's doctor says, isn't it? It is. I know that now, but I, I forgot then ah. when you said so I didn't get the... F- so, of course, Tom's first line, isn't it, about the Santarans, mm. isn't it? And one which really touched me, because it's quite interesting, because I wonder how much um, uh, how much Stephen Moffat has been borrowing from old Terence as well, because, mm. you, you know, you're mentioning right throughout the story, you know, with these little bits of the previous Doctor and the past coming back and mm. the reminiscences that we've just mentioned. But, of course, that's what we've been seeing right throughout series or season 10, mm. are these little touches to the past, isn't it? Mm. And, uh, and, what I, I, and another one that I loved here was the Brigadier's line. He says something like, for once, why can't I meet an alien who isn't impervious to bullets? Yes, he says that, yes. <laughs> oh, that's that's that is perfect, Brigadier, and it's a wonderful line, isn't oh, it? Oh, it it is, it is very much so. Yeah. Oh, do you know this is the thing which I know we're going off on Terence. We will have to do a Malcolm Hulk and all the other, but you know it's these little things. He just comes up with these phrases and expressions which they just won't go away because they're no. so good. You well, know. He, he is Mr. Doctor Who, we have to understand, especially for our generation. He is mm. Mr. Doctor Who. Yes, he, He's yes. the guy who filled in our knowledge with yeah, his books. Yeah, yeah. He, he really, he really did. And I like the fact, the fact that he's novelising his own TV script allows him to make those embellishments to the characters seen on screen and to provide a bit more backstory. I mean, I didn't realise how fond I was of the character of Harry Sullivan until I started looking at Target again. Harry was a great character, and even the Doctor has developed an instant fondness for him by the end of this book. And as you said, you mentioned earlier that Harry's got in his head he might be James Bond. Harry, according to Terence, Harry reads lurid thrillers. (laughs) <laughs> and therefore doesn't need too much persuasion to go undercover at Think Tank. Because he it's was, lovely, wasn't he? That. He was like the yeah. supposed to be the Doctor's strong right arm, but he was so much more. He was... I, I, it's a lovely little performance. It really, mm. really is. It doesn't have a lot to do. Ian Martyr didn't have a lot to do. But what he did, he was incredibly effective on screen. He was very effective, and I think uh, I think it's captured beautifully in this book as well. Because that bit you said there about the lurid thrillers, 
and afterwards when he's trying to be uh, he says something along the lines of Harry suddenly realised that everybody'd gone quiet and was looking at him was <laughs> <laughs> you can see that, can't you? That's the perfect way to sort of uh, bring the focus on to him, is that, you know? Because I noticed right at the end of the last scene, as, um, you know, the doctor's sort of throwing off the unit past and marching towards the TARDIS um, with Sarah and Harry's there. And there's a little bit from Harry's point of view, isn't it, where he's looking at him from a medical perspective and he's saying, poor chap, you know, on mm. earth is he talking about the oh, yeah. poor chap's delusional or something mm. like that, David, isn't it? Yes, but, yes, absolutely. Uh, and I love that because, of course, we, we end then um, with him going into the tower, but we don't know yet what's happened, do we? But that's a lovely way it's done now on, mm. on that last chapter there, if they've defeated the giant robot. Um, can I mention one thing, which I don't often... Um, one thing I absolutely adored about um, the Target novels is I loved the chapter titles. Oh, yes, um, yes. And these, they, there are some beauties. I don't know if you can see them in front of you, David. I can't you, but... see them, no. Oh, right. Well, I've just got a list of them here. And uh, th this is what I, I remember as a child. As I said, I would have had this when it came out in paperback, so a few months after the my birthday date. But um, I would have been open, and I love to look at these chapters and just look through the chapter and, and think of the fabulous pleasure ahead I was going to mm. get, you know, because chapter one... Killer in the Night. Oh, fabulous. Chapter two, something more than human. And the more is in italics, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, you've got robot with a with a, an exclamation mark after Oh, chapter it. four, yeah. Chapter four, that's it, yeah. Any, any, can you see any others you, you love there, David? Or? Um, I can see, well, I can see Trapped by the Robot. That's a very memorable televised scene where the scarf is used to trip the robot yes. and the robot sets a trap doesn't he he yes. fakes death and then be when he's when he's wearing the hat and then he takes mm. a swipe at the doctor yeah and the yeah. cunning little devil had learnt to sort of feign immobility i oh. thought he was ever so clever the way he did that yeah you see as the humanity is being removed from him so that evil, if you like, starts to take over more and more. The, the intelligence is being used for cunning, mm. for... Yes, really Low interesting. Low cunning, yes, yes. Yeah, low cunning, yes, yeah. So I love those chapter titles, and I have to say, um, our listeners at the beginning will have noticed a little um, advert that um, I've put on for the book that I've written, and I really hope that um, you're able to to buy it, either in paperback or download it. But I've sort of pinched off Terence here, if you like, by copying this style of chapter titles. Of oh. Quick. Yeah, I thought I've got to do it because I love it so much. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I had to do that. And uh, anyway, sorry, David, I've got off something. No, you're, but, you're, uh, you're fine, you're fine. Oh, oh you see, well, I'm, I'm going to pick up on some of Terence's more quirky language now. I don't know if you noticed it too, but there was quite a lot of baddish language in that a word used to describe someone with a very red face was used frequently throughout this book. Did you, oh. did you think that there were a lot of uses? It's a euphemism for a worse word, and it kept saying ruddy, you know, 
Why was he on guard duty? I'll tell you why. Ruddy Sergeant had it in for him. I love the way Tom goes, drops his voice into that conspiratorial, innermost thought, tone. And I think Harry says this R word and a few other people say it. Yes. I think Terence has sort of really made it. He's used sort of a colloquial language, but not really bad language like you would these days. He's more you made a euphemism for something much worse. Well, do you know, that's, that's fascinating you say that, David, actually, because as a child reading this, you see that and you sort of know, oh, this is a bit, you know, this is a bit uh, fruity, this is a bit, but it's not bad, yeah, but it's not bad language, as you say. And yet something I still feel in this season's Doctor Who exactly, for example, we've had, well, I don't even want to say the words, you know, but we've there had... There have been some naughty words and there have been some words that you thought were coming that have been swerved away from at the last second. Exactly. Mm. And I'm not comfortable with that. No. I, I don't, yeah, no. I, I don't know if I'm a prude, but I'm not, I'm not comfortable with right. that. I want <laughs> to be able to watch Doctor Who without being, uh, you know... I don't know, I wouldn't be able to watch it with um, the family and, mm. and children without mm. having to sort of be made to feel uncomfortable. But as a with... child, it, it all, you almost feel in with the conspiracy, don't yeah. you? The naughtiness yeah. of it all. You yes. really do. I mean, there's a, there's a line in there where Sarah is almost mocking the brigadier and she says, oh, come on, brigadier, you're a swinger. And he thinks, yeah. swinger, come on, you know, I think we all know what that means. But I don't yeah. think she meant any modern connotation to it. I think she meant he was down with the kids. Yes. Rather than, yes. you know, <laughs> yes. a swinger, yeah. swinger. And <laughs> I heard that line and that sort of uh, made me chuckle a little bit, the thought that he might be. Um, yes. but, uh, yeah. There was another word Terence used that doesn't get used enough in literature when the brigadier is issuing the pass for think tank and yeah. it said he gave it several wallops with a government stamp <laughs> i love i've actually got that in my notes here note number two because it's right at the beginning is that the brigadier walloped the stamp on the forms yeah i it's great david isn't it absolutely I, absolutely i love that loved it do you know talking of um not, not choice language, but language uh, which um, maybe, you know, can have sort of unpleasant connotations. When the end, when Harry is escaping, you know, they're tied up and they sort of, Sarah's trying to get the ropes off his hands and so forth. Right. And it says when he finally slipped through it, it says the description is something like he, he felt the slippery blood they sort of slide off the rope on his right. hand. So that's you don't often get that, do you? No. He's yeah. he's done himself physical harm, hasn't he? In escaping. Yeah. Yeah. But it's and I it's, thought yeah. I thought that took us back a little bit to what what did we review um last year, I think, David, and it was really, really graphic and we weren't used to that in Oh, it was but, the invasion by Ian Martyr. That's it, yes, the invasion. That was in a different league altogether, wasn't mm. it? But I mean, fabulous, but I, I like um, my earlier Terence Dicks type who I think as well. <laughs> not, mm. too, not too much. I prefer Ruddy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think all I can say is it's one you really should buy. It's, um, I, I mean, it's still available, even though it's been out a good while, isn't it? And uh, it's just, I mean, Tom Reed in this, the production values are excellent. The story's great. Um, I mean, I do wish that they'd given it the original cover. Mm, I, I agree think. with you. The Do original you cover, because they did yeah. use the original cover for Green Death, which is by the same artist. Yes, I'm very happy with this story. It's great to listen to, really enjoyable. It's certainly a transition one, uh, you know, from the Pertwee into the Baker era, you know, and I think it does it very, very well indeed. I'm going to give it a strong 8 out of 10. Right, right. Well, I absolutely agree with you that it is a strong transition. In fact, I think it's rather stronger than it came across on the telly. Mm. Mm. And I, I absolutely agree with everything you've said and the reasons you've come to your score. And my own score is slightly higher than yours because I'm giving this 8.5. Oh. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful reading of a wonderful story. And we'd love, David, would me to hear what people think of this or any of other of our reviews oh that'd be great so please email us tweet us um doctor who on target at gmail.com now i'm just wondering what could be the next classic release we have a look at greg any ideas well immediately what sprang to mind then because we've been you've sort of whetted my appetite by mentioning Malcolm Hulk earlier. So I think, wouldn't it be great if we could do, what's that, the second John Purby story, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters? Oh, Doctor Who and the Silurians, novelised as Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. That would be a fantastic choice. Well, we've had a great discussion about Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, and we hope that you will join us again when we look at Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters by Malcolm Hulk. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, David. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's DR Who on Target. Or email us at Doctor Who on Target at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode, and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners. <laughs>